Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Whenever an artist goes into a studio, they hope for the best, but expect the worst. You want the album to sell and turn you into a global superstar with all the rights and privileges there, too. But there is no way to predict how the public will react to what you release. You can throw all the money you want at a song or an album or a band, and there is zero guarantee that it will be successful. Yet people will always try because every once in a while, something remarkable happens. An album is a critical success. It turns into a commercial smash. And every once in a while, every once in a long, long while, it turns into a cultural phenomenon with an impact that lasts years, maybe decades. This is what happened to you 2 in the Joshua Tree. Before the record came out, everybody expected that the band was going to deliver the goods on a very good album, and they did that. But then the record went on to sell something beyond 25 million albums and is now considered to be one of the most significant rock releases of all time. This is beyond just lightning in a bottle. How do they do it? For some of the answers, I turned to one of the people who co-produced the album. That would be Daniel Lanois. This is U2 and the Joshua Tree, 30 Years Later, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. U2's The Joshua Tree is not only the band's biggest record, but it's also one of those records that every rock fan seems to have in their collection. Beatles' Revolver, Led Zeppelin IV, Nevermind from Nirvana, The Clash in London Calling, Who's Next, Pat Sounds, Exile on Main Street, Rumors, Ziggy Stardust. You get the idea. March 9th, 2017 was the 30th anniversary of the release of The Joshua Tree. Then on March 12th, I sat down with co-producer Daniel Lanois to talk about the making of the record. And we did it kind of differently. It was in front of a live audience of hardcore U2 fans at the Hard Rock Cafe in Toronto, and we're examining the record track by track. Part one was all about side one of the original vinyl release, and we're going to pick things up today with side two. Actually, we already started that with Red Hill Mining Town, so let's move to the next song. Next, we move on to In God's Country. Uh, this was um, Bono was looking at some of the stuff that you guys had done up until that point and goes to the edge and says, can we rock this record up a little bit? And, and that's where parts of, of uh, In God's Country come, come from. Is that true? Um, I'm not sure what was going on in their heads with that. I just remember it being a very vibrant um, and propelling groove that we, we thought would be a nice compliment to the record. Um, and it's really, uh, I think it's one of Edge's best with the, uh, with the echo rhythms and, uh, and a great groove from Larry. So, yeah, you're not far off, you know, Al, it's, it's rock and roll, but it's, it speeds along. It's got a lot of si uh, signposts, you know, it's got a little Audubon in it. In God's Country was released as a single in North America, the album's fourth, about three months after Where the Streets Have No Name. It might be about Ireland, it might be about America, but we do know that Bono later dedicated the song to the Statue of Liberty. Track nine on the album is Trip Through Your Wires. 
Bono plays harmonica, and the only place where it was released as a single was in Australia. 500 hand-numbered copies on vinyl with wires on one side and three songs on side two. And don't worry, we will get to some of those songs later. A copy of that Australian single, the limited edition one, will sell for around 50 bucks today. Here's Daniel Lanois talking about the song. Uh, Trip Through Your Wires, again, a song that has not been played live since the Joshua Tree Tour. Okay. Um, well, that's in 6-8. Uh, six, 6-8 grooves are hard to deliver live, you know. We talk about this regularly because a lot of songwriters write in 6-8, but they're seldom... Uh, they seldom get on radio and they don't communicate all that well live but but that's a great it's a lovely melody so I'm sure that they could pull it off and do yeah, it yeah 618 it's tough to dance to it's, it's like a double waltz yeah, right yeah it's a waltz I mean uh, Alicia Keys had a pretty good, pretty good one a few years ago you know she copied uh, James Brown it's a man's world so but she had a hip hop thing to the bottom so let me call the boys and suggest a hip-hop thing. Okay. <laughs> if you ask The Edge about that song, he'll say that it doesn't really make sense in terms of the rest of the album because it's supposed to be heard in context of another song called The Sweetest Thing, which was left off the album. We'll get to why later. Meanwhile, here's Trip Through Your Wires. You two and track nine from the Joshua Tree. It's trip through your wires. Track ten is One Tree Hill, and this one comes with a sad true story. Uh, one Tree Hill is one of the uh, another emotional song on the album because it tells a story of, or it's dedicated to Greg Carroll, the man from the Maori Man. Yes, um, who had a motorcycle accident. Yeah, that was a sweet man. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, it's a lovely title, a lovely image, isn't it? Because he was a standout in the city, because I think there were only two black people in the country at the time. What was, what was about here? Did, did, did he have a relationship with the man? It was funny. <laughs> <laughs> did he, what was his relationship with the man? The other man? one was Phil in it. Jeez. <clears throat> All right, I'll get off it. What was his relationship with the man? Do you remember? Well, uh, he was one of the, one of the crew, and um, the thing about you 2 is... Uh, they have really devoted people around them, and it's very much part of the of the, the makeup of the band. That you know, they, there's a great support system and a lot of love in the community, in the house community. Let's fill in a few blanks here. Greg Carroll was a Maori man that met you two in Auckland, New Zealand, when they landed for the Unforgettable Fire tour in 1984. The story is that Bono had some really bad jet lag and he couldn't sleep, so he decided he'd go out on the town with some locals. And one of the guys who fell in with him that night was Greg Carroll. Greg had been working as a sound man for a comedy troupe, but he and Bono hit it off because of his sense of humor. And later, his awesome work ethic. At some point on that tour stop, Greg took Bono up One Tree Hill in Auckland, which can be best described as a spiritually significant volcanic peak. Greg was hired right there, and he finished the rest of that world tour with the band. They got him a passport and brought him on the payroll. By 1985, he was working as Bono's personal stage assistant. If you've ever seen U2's performance at Live Aid, you'll have seen Greg standing next to Bono on stage. By the following year, he was Bono's full-time personal assistant, even when the band was at home in Dublin. And he also became a very good friend of Bono's wife, Allie. 
As U2 was putting together material for what would become the Joshua Tree, Greg was given the job of researching locations for things like where the album artwork could be shot and studios where the band might record. The motorcycle accident happened on July 3rd, 1986. Greg was bringing Bono's bike back to his house on a rainy night, but suddenly a car pulled out right in front of him, and Carol rode right into the side of the car. He was killed instantly, and he was just 26. Bono had been on the ground in Texas for about an hour when he heard the news. He blew off a recording session with Willie Nelson and flew right back to Ireland, and then all of the U2 organization flew Carol's body back to New Zealand. At the traditional Maori funeral, Bono sang Let It Be by the Beatles and Knockin' on Heaven's Door by Bob Dylan. But that didn't seem like it was enough, so he sat down and wrote One Tree Hill. And the vocal take that we hear on One Tree Hill was the only one Bono did because he was so full of grief, he didn't think he'd be able to do it again. And listen to the string parts in the song. Dick Paul and Adele Arman of Toronto recorded their parts at Grant Avenue Studios in Hamilton, they were directed by Daniel and the Edge over the course of a six-hour transatlantic phone call. A couple more things before we leave One Tree Hill. Although it was inspired by the death of Bono's personal assistant, it also mentions the human rights atrocities in Chile under the dictator Augusto Pinochet. Along with Bull of the Blue Sky and Mothers of the Disappeared, which we will get to shortly, it forms a trilogy that call out the United States for its involvement in that regime. U2 hasn't played that song in concert a lot, but they have been known to bring it out for special occasions, and they always play it when they're in New Zealand. When we come back, we'll finish up looking at all the songs that made the Joshua Tree, and then start on all the songs that didn't. This is the second half of an interview with Daniel Lanwan, the creation of U2's Joshua Tree album. We're going through the record song by song, and we have just two more to go for the album proper. Track 10 is Exit. What do you make of that, Dan? This is another song we haven't heard in 30 years. I don't remember how that one goes. Can we play it? Uh, we'll have to, well, okay, we'll have to dig it out, because frankly, it's, it's lost on me, too. <laughs> I can't think of it at the moment. <laughs> can, you, can you hum it? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, um, embarrassing. Let, let's, let's play the song so we can all regroup. Okay, that's better. We, we have it now. Exit came together on the very last day of the Joshua Tree sessions. It began as a long jam that was edited down to what we hear on the record. One jam, one take. Uh, just to remind Dan about the song, here's a quote from him about Exit. There's something that happens when U2 bashes it out in the band room, and sometimes things get out of control, sonically, in a good way. Out of control in the sense that you don't know what it is anymore. It just takes on a life of its own and makes people do things like, there was a long jam and there was something in this one section of it that had some kind of magic to it, and we just decided to turn it into something. Lyrically, the song draws from a book by Norman Mailer called The Executioner's Song, which tells the real-life story of Gary Gilmore, who was executed by Firing Squad, and also by the Truman Capote novel In Cold Blood. So uh, Bono was a serial killer, sort of. Things really got weird with the song on July 19, 1989, when a freak named Robert John Bardo tracked down actress Rebecca Schaefer and killed her. 
Bardo allegedly claimed that the lyrics to Exit influenced his thinking. The song was even played at his trial, and Bardo apparently bopped along to it as it was played in the courtroom. His lawyer actually used the song as part of their defense case. But it didn't work, though. The guy was convicted of first-degree murder. And if I may fill in one other blank, the song was performed on all 109 of the original Joshua Tree tour shows, but as far as anybody can tell, it was played only one other time up until the 30th anniversary tour. The 11th and final song on the Joshua Tree is Mothers of the Disappeared. Again, this track is meant to be viewed in the same context as Bull of the Blue Sky and One Tree Hill, a slap at both the Pinochet dictatorship in Chile and America's involvement with that dictatorship. It also draws on Bono's feelings about political instability in Nicaragua and El Salvador, and also a group called Madres de Plaza de Mayo in Argentina. This was a group of women whose children had been forcibly disappeared by the military governments in both that country and Chile between 1976 and 1983. This was nothing short of a human rights atrocity. Let's go to Daniel Lanois for comment. The final track is Mothers of the Disappeared. This... I'm guessing came from when they went on the Conspiracy of Hope tour in the middle of the rec- uh, of, of recording the album. And this is about things happening in South America, and especially Argentina and Chile, where dictator- dictators were disappearing people who were um, anti- or perceived as anti-government. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sad thought, isn't it? That, I mean, how fortunate are we here in Canada that we get to speak our minds and our kids get to walk to school, and we're not we're generally not in danger of, of you know, we can. Um, so it's a reminder there are certain parts of the world where they don't have that kind of flexibility and freedom to speak their minds. A few more nuggets about Mothers of the Disappeared. Bono lifted part of the melody from a song he had written while on a humanitarian mission in Ethiopia. He had written a little ditty on Spanish guitar designed to teach young children about personal hygiene. The most powerful performance of that song happened on February 5th and 11th, 1998. The first was performed with some of the original mothers on stage in Argentina. In Chile on the 11th, the song was played in a stadium that was once used by the Pinochet regime as a prison camp for those same disappeared people. The Madres joined the band again, holding up pictures of their still lost children. And unlike the Argentinian show, the gig was broadcast on television to the whole country with Bono demanding that the government tell these women where the bones of their children were. That had a real-world effect. Pinochet was about to be named Senator for Life in Chile, but he ended up being the focus of mass protests over his role in The Disappeared. Mothers of the Disappeared, the final song on the Joshua Tree. One more note about that. In Guatemala, another country with a terrible civil rights record, that song appeared on the B-side of With or Without You, which was an interesting political statement. That's the whole album, but these are not all the songs that were considered for the record. We'll spend our remaining time looking at the album's orphan songs. This is a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the Joshua Tree from U2. We've gone through the 11 tracks that made up the record, But the band wrote more than 30, which means a substantial number of them did not make the cut, at least not initially. Some of those rejected songs have since officially seen the light as B-sides, while others still remain AWOL. But here's one you might know. And I guess the most famous of the songs that didn't make the album was Sweetest Thing. 
Oh, yeah. That, that turned out great in the end, didn't it? Uh, well, yeah. And it took Bono to get into a fight with Allie to actually get it out there. Uh, yeah, he... Uh, well, I don't know if I should be... Is the story common enough? It is. It was, uh, okay. Missing your birthday? Yeah. Um, he gave his wife the song... For, uh, Here, honey, I wrote a song for you. It's called The Sweetest Thing. She said, give me the publishing. <laughs> <laughs> If it's a gift, I want the publishing. And she donated it all to, uh, there was a Ukrainian charity, right? For um, It sounds about right. Chernobyl, that's right, yeah. That, that sounds about right. That's a lovely, lovely Why didn't story. that song make the album? It was the B-side to where? Uh, where the Streets Have No Name, the 12-inch? The it just wasn't complete yet, Al. Uh, I think it took another round of, um, a, a, you know, maybe a few months away from it, and they had another go at it, and, and then it, it made more sense at that time. It's, it just goes that way sometimes. Something's not quite ready to be released. See, here again, I told you this before, but I talked to Steve Lillywhite, uh, and he says that U2 is great at making records. They're terrible at finishing them. Uh, well... <laughs> and, and maybe this is an example of something that just wasn't yeah. ready in time, because... I think it's a... You know, he's insinuating that there's... You know, if... When you go into the studio to compose, you know, if you walk in with finished songs, that's one thing. But if you're composing in the studio, it's hard to, to know when things are actually complete. So in, well, their, yeah, don't in you? their defense, you know. Again, Bono writes the song for his wife because he forgot her birthday because he was so tied up in the recording of The Joshua Tree. It originally ended up as a B-side on the single for Where the Streets Have No Name in 1987. And despite that backseat position, the song received an unusual amount of radio airplay and became quite popular with fans. And then, in 1998, it was re-recorded and re-released and was massively successful in Canada and Ireland, where it became a number one hit. It also reached number six in the UK, but for some reason, only number 63 in the US. In Europe, the 1998 single was promoted with Sweetest Thing chocolate bars. These were actual chocolate bars wrapped in gold foil, and they are now super coveted by collectors of U2 ephemera. I have no idea how much they trade for, but it's probably way more than anybody should pay for a hunk of chocolate. But back to the original recording of Sweetest Thing, the one that was relegated to a B-side back in 1987. Let's have a listen to that. The original recording of The Sweetest Thing, rejected for inclusion on the Joshua Tree, but a big hit as a standalone single, when it was re-recorded more than a decade later. Let's try another. Luminous Times' Hold On to Love is a co-write with Brian Eno. In fact, some sources list him as the sole songwriter, which, if true, would be highly unusual for a U2 song. It was packaged with With or Without You as a B-side. It's a good song, but not enough to make the album. Luminous Times, Hold On to Love, a YouTube B-side that appears to have been written by Joshua Tree producer Brian Eno. Interesting. Let's go back to Daniel Lanois about the making of the album. Uh, another thing that I've heard from many artists who say that, look, at they're up against either budgets or, or a deadline. Uh, sometimes you don't finish an album as much as you are forced to abandon it. Well, that's well put. You know, the oftentimes the songs that take, that have have had the most labor poured into them are the ones that don't get on. Yeah. Um, With or Without You came very quickly. Um, you know, it was already quite formed. Uh, 
we, we tried an experiment, uh, Ian and myself. He went in for the first two weeks, went home, and I went in for the following two you weeks. You tag team this. We did a tag team. And we even did tag team mixing. Do you know what that is? No. You get 15 minutes to mix. You finish the mix, you leave the room, the other guy comes in, and the only r rule is nothing sacred. And the other guy does a mix for 15 minutes, walks out, and I come back in. And then in an hour, you've got four mixes to listen to. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of like speed chess. Speed chess, there you go. Cool. <laughs> Uh, another song that didn't make it that ended up being a, a live favorite certainly was, was one of mine was Silver and Gold. Uh, again, that one could have probably made it. I think it's the same story that it just wasn't done, Al, you know. I mean, you're naming two. What about the other 80? Yeah. This song predated the Joshua Tree by about two years. Bono wrote a version of it with Keith Richards and Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones. This was for the Sun City Artists Against Apartheid collection. If you have a copy of that album, it might not appear in the track listing because it was such a last-minute inclusion. It came that late. Silver and Gold was later rewritten and re-recorded during the Joshua Tree sessions. When it was cut from the album, it became the second half of the B-side of Where the Streets Have No Name single in 1987, along with The Sweetest Thing. And it sounds like this. Silver and Gold, recorded for the Joshua Tree, but not included on the original release. The album itself has been released a number of times, including a 20th anniversary edition and a 30th. Let's get Daniel Landwine here one more time. Did you have any input into either the 20th anniversary or the 30th anniversary edition? Well, we, we've been talking recently. Yes, but I think it's all top secret stuff. I don't, how much am I allowed to say? I here? don't know anything about it. I mean, I... We won't, we won't tell anybody. Well, yes, see, uh, the voice of reason over there, she's going. Well, why don't we leave it at this, Al? Um, I've heard rumors that there's a surprise on the horizon. All right, we'll leave it at that then. Thanks, everybody. Nice to see everyone here at the Hard Rock Cafe. Have a nice time, and uh, I'll see you a little later. Yeah, my. Thanks to Daniel Lanois for being so generous with his time and his stories. Thanks to the Hard Rock Cafe in Toronto for giving us a place to do the interview. And thanks to all the U2 fans that came out to see this thing happen. Oh, and to everybody at Universal Records for all the help. You guys rock. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you later. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.